Good morning, Grace family. Thank you again for joining us as we talk about traveling light, letting go of guilt. You know, guilt, something that we all have struggled with, I think. How many of you struggle with guilt? If you, if you struggle with guilt or you're guilty right now or you've ever struggled with it, just type in the word guilt. Guilt is the gift that keeps on giving, right? I mean, there's no problem so awful that you can't add some guilt to it and make it even worse. I think guilty feelings and people that have guilt, it's pretty prolific in life. Uh, if you need someone to blame, throw a rock in the air, you're probably going to hit someone guilty. In fact, I heard, you know what conscience is? Conscience is what makes a boy tell his mother before his sister tells her all about it. I went to my therapist and I said, Doc, I have two problems I want to talk to you about. And he said, go on. I said, well, look, whenever I'm not working, I feel guilty. And he said, well, you must be a, a workaholic, but let's proceed. What's your second problem? I said, I have a lot of guilt, but I'm bumped. There's your one groaner. There's another one coming. Can you take another groaner, church? Well, one more. This one's for my Catholic brothers and sisters. What do Catholic bodybuilders lift? Their own guilt. Roseman Lupton once said about guilt, I get up and I pace the room as if I can leave my guilt behind me, but it tracks me as I walk, an ugly shadow made by myself. So today we're going to talk about leaving some of this guilt behind, and we're going to talk about it in a biblical sense, in a real story sense, and my own personal sense. Are you ready? Are you ready? Say amen. Here we go. He was a good man. He was an honorable man. And yet he was betrayed by the one he loved the most and betrayed by the one he respected the most. And he never even saw it coming. He died believing he was fighting for a just cause, believing that his wife loved him, believing that his king believed in him. And he was wrong, dead wrong. Here's what happened. It's the spring of the year. Now we know what happens in the spring, right? Spring cleaning, get out the Windex, clean the windows, clean up the yard, all those things. But in biblical times, springtime was a different, different thing. We're reading 2 Samuel 11.1. 1. The following spring, the time of year when kings go to war. Ah, when spring is here, the robins come back and the flowers come up and the kings go to war. Why? Well, that's just what the Bible says. That's what's going on in biblical times. Maybe winter was too cold to go to war, and at the summer, everyone was at the beach, and spring was the time. Anyway, here's the story. It's the spring of the year, and the nation of Israel's at war with a couple of different factions. But the king, and that would be David, he's not there. He's at home in Jerusalem. His troops are fighting the Ammonites in Rabbah, and David's in Jerusalem. Now today, that might not seem all that strange. After all, heads of state... In our country, rarely go to war. They just start the wars. But in David's day and king's age, they went to war. They, they, they led the troops. David should have been out leading the troops. But David, for some reason, was not doing that at this time. This time he's home. And it's in the afternoon. And he decides he's just going to take a nap. And after the nap, it says in 2 Samuel 11:2, late one afternoon, David got out of bed after taking a nap and went for a stroll on the roof of the palace. As he looked over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty 
taking a bath. So he gets up from his nap. Must be nice to be the king, you know, just take a little nap in the afternoon. Taking a stroll on the roof of the palace and looks over and this woman is taking a bath. And she's not just any old lady. The Bible says she's pretty foxy. She's pretty sexy. I mean, that's what it says when it says unusual beauty. She was easy on the eyes. Now, I'm not saying it's her fault. But ladies, it's always a bad idea to take a bath out in public, especially if someone's house is a little bit higher than your house and someone can see in. She, so she's taking a bath naked, and David is obviously interested. He sends a messenger that says, hey, come on over to the king's palace. And when the king invites, you go. Now, I don't know why David invited her up in the first place. Maybe it was an innocent gesture. Maybe not. Maybe he wanted to warn her about the dangers of bathing naked. Maybe he wanted to compliment her on her beauty. Eh, probably. Maybe he wanted to ask her about her husband. Because by this time, David knew that she was married to one of his troops. Maybe he just wanted to show some of his etchings and drawings around the palace. I don't know, but we do know what ended up happening with the, the Bible says... It's pretty clear that he slept with her. He knew her in a biblical way. In the next verse, she discovers she's pregnant, and she sends news to David. Uh, we, we got a little problem. It was Helen Rowland who once said, one man's folly is often another man's wife. I thought that was funny. Now, I want to diverge here just for a minute. You have to put this into perspective as to why Bathsheba got pregnant. I mean, other than the obvious. I'm not going to go through basic biology here. But the Bible tells us that Bathsheba was bathing. The reason she was bathing is because her religion required it. Huh? What religion is this? Now, I know ladies in the church sometimes tend to shower. That might be biblical, but this is a whole different thing. The Bible actually says in 2 Samuel eleven four, Then David sent for her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites. After having her menstrual period, then she returned home. So look, here's what we need to know. Most of you probably don't read the book of Leviticus. Anyone here ever read the book of Leviticus? Huh. In the book of Leviticus, laws are laid down for the Jewish community for almost every facet of life. In chapter 15, there's an entire section concerning a woman's menstrual cycle. After a woman's period, she was considered unclean for another seven days, during which time she could not enter sexual relations with her husband. After that seven days, she went through a ritual cleaning process, which involved ceremonial baths. Apparently hers was outside. And then the couple was free to do whatever it is couples do. Now this to us seems a little strange and just a little bit restrictive. But there was a method to their madness. Unlike this generation that's obsessive about stopping pregnancies, Israel was trying to become a great nation. And if you want to be a great nation, you need people, you need babies. So you understand what the time frame is here, don't you, church? If you're still awake, I hope you are. When a couple can resume lovemaking, the woman would be in her most fertile period. Had either David or Bathsheba logged on to babycenter.com, and use the ovulation calculator, then he wouldn't have had to ask and she wouldn't have had accepted. 
But what was done and the die was cast, so to speak, and the baby was on its way. Well, David's no dummy, though, right? I mean, at least not after the fact. And so he sent for Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, who was fighting David's battles. The thought that, hey, Uriah's been away from his wife for a long time. He'd be missing her, anxious to be back with her, to sleep with his wife. And maybe he would think he was the father because maybe he couldn't count back to nine. Anyway, Uriah comes home and David, the king, greets him in person. Imagine this. Hey, guy, you're doing a great job. Why not go home, get cleaned up, and enjoy yourself? You know, nod, nod, wink, wink. The king sent a lovely dinner over to Uriah's house. But Uriah didn't go home. He slept outside. The king calls him back and says, Am I missing something here? And Uriah responded by saying, How could I possibly go home to a nice warm meal, a soft bed, and a beautiful wife when my troops are still in the field? So it was on to plan B for David, which is where David invited Uriah to the palace. Come on over. Obviously, an offer you can't turn down. And while David was there, he proceeded to get Uriah drunk and then sent him home, thinking that he would go and sleep with his wife. But instead, Uriah bedded down outside the house once again, proving, Uriah did, that he was a better man drunk than the king was sober. What was on to plan C? Which is where David sent Uriah back to the front lines with a note for his commander. If Uriah had peeked at this note, this is what it would have read. For those of you who can read Hebrew, it's on the screen. It doesn't make a lot of sense to you probably, but if you can read it in English, here's what it says in 2 Samuel 11:15. Station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is the fiercest, then pull back so he'll be killed. The Uriah obviously didn't read the note, and he was killed in battle. And I'm sure David must have been thinking, man, I love it when a plan comes together. And I'm sure he thought he'd gotten away with it. But you listen to what the hypocrite had the nerve to tell Joab, who was Uriah's commander in 2 Samuel 11.25. Well, tell Job not to be discouraged, David said. The sword kills one as well as the other. Fight harder next time and conquer the city. So what is it we can learn from this? The beginning is usually innocent, right? Understand it didn't start with adultery. Regardless of what you've read or seen in the movies, it doesn't just happen. But it did start out with a pair of them doing what they ought not be doing. She was just having a bath. Of course, having a bath in the privacy of your backyard, that wasn't so private. I mean, if you want to peel off and sunbathe in the buff or bathe in your backyard, and you have an eight-foot privacy fence, and yours is the highest backyard in the neighborhood, that's your business. And what happens in your backyard stays in your backyard. But if perchance your house is next to a much taller house, and your neighbor has a habit of looking into your backyard, you might want to rethink the strategy, ladies, of taking a bath in public. And David was just out for a walk. But what could be wrong with a walk? We're told we're supposed to walk more. I'm sure his first glance was innocent enough. Maybe even his second, he wanted to be sure of what he was seeing. But how many glances did he need? And what was up with inviting her over to the palace? That's kind of like putting your hand in the fire and wondering why you got burned. I mean, David looked, and obviously David had some lust. And what's the best rule on lust? It's from 500 years ago, Martin Luther said, 
You can't stop the birds from flying over your head, but you can stop them from building a nest in your hair, right? And that's what a lustful thought is, like a little bird that lands in there. Now, I've talked to some friends of mine who've struggled with lust, and they're like, yeah, but when I struggle with lust, pastor, it's not just like a little bird. It's like a big eagle with talons comes in and just builds a big old nest. And now, that may be true, but you need to sh- shoo the eagle away as well. So what do we learn? The first thing we learn from David is he gets crushed by guilt. He is absolutely crushed by this. He's, he, he has a conscience. Eventually, David is found out, and he's overcome with guilt. And David actually talks that guilt is so heavy, such a burden, that it causes silence. And, and, and he, he can't even deal with it. Scriptures say, this is what David wrote. So when I kept silent, my groans grew old through my groaning all day long. David could even approach God. A man after God's own heart was filled with sin and guilt. He couldn't even talk to the Lord about anything because that sin was so great and that guilt was so great, it was like blocking his relationship with God. And if you know, the Bible actually says this can happen in Psalm 66, 18. If I regard my iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. So sometimes our sin and our guilt actually cuts off our relationship with God. So David runs away from God due to his guilt. And this is what guilt does when we travel with it. A guilt trip. And it takes us much farther than we ever wanted to go. And guilt causes us to run from the very one that we should run to. So David no longer had fellowship with God. His heart became silent. His communication with God began to be cut off. And here's what's also true, and psychology and social sciences has proven this. His guilt began to have physical dimensions. He says that his bones grew old through his groaning all the day long. He literally became physically ill from carrying the guilt of what he had done. He had committed adultery. He had killed a man who was loyal to him. The next verse, and where you can read this is Psalm 32. It's a wonderful confessional psalm. Verse 4 tells us David was filled with sorrow. For night and day, God, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned in the drought of summer. It's like he's been mowing the lawn all day. and All the strength is gone. King David was still commanding as all the subjects of the king, but he could not command his own conscience. He's filled with agony. His freshness of life was gone and it was replaced with bitterness and anguish. His life was a mess. He was consumed with guilt. Noel Coward, the famous playwright, once pulled an interesting prank. He sent an identical note to 20 of the most famous men in London. The anonymous note simply read, everybody has found out what you're doing. If I were you, I'd get out of town. All 20 men left town. That shows you what guilt does. What if you opened your mail one day and found that note? What would race through your mind? Guilt is the dread of the past. A pain that wells up in our heart because of an offense we committed or maybe even something we failed to do. Before we get to the solution, I want to tell you another true story. And this is a recent story. 
And I read in the news recently about a young man, a 15-year-old boy by the name of Robert Garth. Robert was a track star in high school in Detroit. He actually made the junior Olympic tryouts. He came from a very poor family. And as the day was drawing near for him to go to the Olympic tryouts, he began to think about how poor his clothing was. And he didn't have anything worthy to wear. And he was seeing all these other athletes who had all the, the Nike and the name brand stuff. And he had Walmart specials. And his family was poor. He had no way to buy clothes. And one night, he was watching TV and he got an idea. It wasn't a good idea, but it was an idea he followed up on. There was a warehouse where he did often jobs. There was an older man in the warehouse by the name of Joseph Mokarai. He knew that Joseph was often in the warehouse alone in the mornings. And whenever he had done often odd jobs for Joseph, Robert always got paid from a stack of bills that Joseph had in his pocket. And he knew where he carried that money. So his idea was to sneak into the warehouse early one morning before he showed up, before Joseph showed up. He'd linger behind one of the doors, and then you'd come up behind him and hit him over the head with a club or something, take all the money out of his pockets, and then he'd have money for clothes for the Junior Olympics. We got up 5 o'clock in the morning, got to the warehouse, and waited behind the door, and for some reason, it just wasn't like the movies, right? When Joseph came through the warehouse with a coffee pot in his hand, Robert came up behind him, and Robert bumped into something, and Joseph turned around and saw this young boy with a club in his hand, and he said, I'll give you whatever you want. But by this time, Robert panicked, and he hit this very older man very hard over the head, and he fell down, and he, he rifled through his pockets, and he got a whopping total of $67, and he left. He went off to the Junior Olympics, not knowing that day that they took Joseph to the hospital, and that night he died. He heard about it the next day. He didn't do very well in the Junior Olympics. He came in fourth in the 200-meter dash. He came home and tried to go back to school. He was a pretty popular kid, but things were not the same. He tried to forget what had happened, but he couldn't. It wasn't long before his grades began to drop and his, his work on the track and track coach wanted to know, what's wrong with you? He wasn't performing as well as he had in the past because guilt was eating him up. The only way he could find relief from guilt was to drink. And so he began to drink and drink and drink. Somehow he managed to get through high school, but all of his dreams were put on hold because he got into a relationship with a young lady and they got pregnant. And after three years of living with him drinking, she filed for divorce and took that little girl of his and left. Robert was left to wander around trying to find out what he could do and make it of his life. He moved back to Detroit. That didn't work. He didn't get along with his father. His drinking continued to increase. And one night he decided he needed to leave, leave everything behind. And he went out of Detroit where he lived to another city. And then he came back to Detroit and four or five years. This went on for 15 years. He struggled with guilt at the age of 30 years old was wandering the streets of Detroit one night, chastising himself for the guilt because nobody else even knew. Nobody knew what he had done. The murder had gone unsolved. No one ever suspected it had anything to do with the 15-year-old kid. But he thought to himself, 
And he wrote these words, but I know, and I'm a somebody. And if I know, there's got to be something meaningful about that. So instead of committing suicide, which he had thought about a lot, he decided he went to go to the police department and he confessed that he was the one 15 years earlier who had taken Joseph's life. He went to the police department and you can imagine the sergeant shock. Here's a 15-year-old case and this guy's walking in off the street admitting they took his man's life. They put him in prison for a period of time and investigated what he said and found out he had been telling the truth and he had committed the crime. Nobody could understand why he'd come forward after all these years because he wasn't going to get caught. But after he was in prison for a few days, someone gave him a copy of the Bible. And he read Psalms. And he read particularly David's Psalm about confessing and guilt and about what God had done for David and how God had forgiven David and God could forgive him. His trial was an interesting one because the judge noted that he had come forward after such a long time period, decided to give him leniency, and he was given a very, very short sentence. And of course, friends of Joseph were quite upset because they thought they'd lost their friend due to this man's murder and that he should have served more time in prison. But Robert Garth said this, and please hear me because this is my point of the story. This is what Robert said. My time in prison was easy compared to the 15 years I lived with the crime in my mind. My incarceration in the mind of my guilt was the worst thing I could have ever known in my life. Nothing they could ever do to me by incarcerating me for the rest of my life even could measure up to the awful sense of being in the prison of my own guilt for the 15 years that I hid my sin. So how do we say goodbye to guilt? In both examples, David and Robert, it just begins with owning it, confessing it, admitting your guilt, admitting that you've messed up or that you've done something you shouldn't have done or left out something you should have done. If you read Psalm 51, David writes out his confession, and you'll notice how he uses the personal pronoun. And I put these verses with the pronoun italized on the screen. Watch this. David says, have mercy on me. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned. What's David doing there? He's stepping up to the plate and taking responsibility. You know, it's, it's almost a lost thing in our generation of actually owning it. He's not blaming Bathsheba for taking a bath. He just says, this was my mistake. He owns it. And that's what we have to do. We have to own it and go to God and just say, God, you know, I've blown it. I've messed this up. I really need your forgiveness. Because otherwise it will block us from actually having fellowship with God. It'll block us from living our life. And there's only one person in this universe who can forgive your sin. And that's God Almighty. I cannot forgive your sin. I can pray to God for you. Your priest cannot forgive your sin, regardless of what they tell you in confession. Your pastor can't forgive your sin. There's only one person in the universe who can forgive you of your sin, and that's Almighty God. And God does that because of what Jesus has done on the cross. So you, when you come with your guilt, you acknowledge your guilt, you accept responsibility, and then you offer it up to God. 
And you say, God, I've sinned against you. Please forgive me. And I want you to notice what David asked God for him to do. He answered the guilt. He says, God, remove my sin. He wanted to travel without the sin of guilt. And so you go to the one who paid the price for it, Jesus. You know, one of my favorite scenes is in Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion, and it begins with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the devil's behind him, and the devil, of course, is the great accuser, and he keeps whispering to Jesus, he keeps saying, do you really think your blood's enough for the sins of the whole world? He's trying to create doubt in Jesus' mind, but Jesus' blood is enough for your sins and for mine. It is enough. I'd like to imagine this this way, just as Robert, the young man who committed that unconfessed crime for 15 years, when we finally get up the courage and go to God and say, God, I'm sorry, I think this is what is happening. We're sitting on the floor in our dusty cell of our prison, awaiting our final moment. We don't even want to look up as the door opens up. We know what the jailer is going to say. Time to pay for your sins. But when we confess to God, we hear something else. You're free to go. They took Jesus instead of you. What? Yes. The door swings back open. The guard barks to you. Get out. You're free to go. You don't have to live in guilt anymore. And we find ourselves the shackles gone and the crimes pardoned. And we're wondering what happened. And I'll tell you what just happened. Grace just happened. Christ took away your sins. Romans 3.24 said, God in his gracious kindness declares us not guilty. For God sent Jesus to take the punishment for our sins. We were made right with God when we believed that Jesus shed his blood, sacrificing his life for us. What happened? Grace happened. Because when grace moves in, guilt has to move out. So if you want to be free of guilt, confess to God and make amends with others. As long as the ones you've hurt, it doesn't hurt them further to make amends with them, right? Sometimes that can. Let me close with this confessional guilt-ridden story about me. And the reason I want to share this uh, is not because I think I need a personal example, but because I think that one of the reasons sometimes people are not into sermons by pastors is because the pastors don't ever put themselves in the sermon. So I want to tell you a story about how I struggle with guilt in my own life goes back to a time when I was 15 as well. When I was a student back in high school, I worked for Dairy Queen for an owner named Richard Thayer. And Rhonda Thayer was his daughter. They were wonderful people to work for, but they were a bit of taskmasters. And I came from the wonderful establishment of Burger King where they had the flame whoppers. And they hired me at Dairy Queen because they were going to get the flame boiled machine. And I already knew how to break it all down. I knew how to put it all together. I knew how to clean it. And so I was the one that was hired at Dairy Queen to do that. That meant dealing with the hot grease and the flame broiled machine. And it meant cleaning it at the end of the night. And often it put me into overtime. They didn't like paying overtime. So I worked for regular time. And once in a while, I got to work on the floor, you know, handing those wonderful Dairy Queen cones with the curl. To this day, if you go to a Chinese buffet with me, I can do a curl like nobody else. Trust me. Anyhow, 
one day someone came in and it was around Christmas time and we had a tip jar. And this guy was feeling generous and I gave him a cone and I was at one end of the counter and the tip jar was at the other end and he handed me $20. He told me to put it in the tip jar and the idea was we would split the tips at the end of the day. Well, the tip jar was on the other end of the counter. I was dealing with customers and so I just put the money in my pocket thinking I'd put it in the tip jar later. I forgot about it and went home. And I didn't do it on purpose, but when I got home, I got to thinking as I reached in my pocket and pulled out that 20 bucks. You ever done that where you're like, oh, wow. And then I remembered, oh, this was supposed to go in the tip jar. But then I thought, you know, wait a minute. I'm getting paid at the time $3.35 an hour. That's minimum wage when I was 15. So 20 bucks in cash was worth eight hours of work after taxes. And Rhonda and Richard have been working me pretty hard. Playing broiled machine, all kinds of things. So I, I kept the money. I didn't think about it at first, but every once in a while I'd think about it. And every time I wanted to do something for God, that would come up. That was like a little sin stain that was blocking my relationship with God. But then I thought, who can I tell? I thought about telling my dad, but my dad was a colonel in the Air Force Base. And besides, I'd save my dad some embarrassment. So I played all the games like we do, and I went off to seminary, I got married. And when I came out of seminary, I got my very first job right here in Corpus. And I was the youth pastor. I was the youth pastor. Because I would tell people, I'm the pastor, and they would say, you're the youth pastor. Now when I tell people I'm the pastor, they don't say you're the youth pastor. They just believe me. Anyway, I remember one time I was asked to go to this camp and speak to a group of young people. And I was driving my car up to the camp. It was a few hours away. And I became overwhelmed with guilt. And I started thinking about how much interest would there be on $20? And so I stopped in this little town in in Bandera, Texas, and I got 60 bucks. I figured, yeah, 40 bucks, that's, that's a lot. And, then, and I put it in an envelope, and I addressed it to the Dairy Queen store, but I didn't put a note or anything with it. I just put the money in the envelope, and I sent it back. I figured at least now, well, you know, I hadn't confessed it. Um, I hadn't asked for forgiveness, and it was still heavy on my heart, but I'm just going to get rid of it. And I, years went by. And I was preaching in my church in New Braunfels. And to my amazement, one Sunday, there showed up in the pews, Rhonda Thayer, my manager, who I worked for for years. And she sat down in the third row. And I messed up that sermon so bad. Because the entire time that she was there, every time I looked out, you know what I thought? She wants her 20 bucks. She's come to get her $20 where's my two dollars? Remember that in the movie? That's what I thought. So after the service, I invited Rhonda back to my office. She was with her husband. And I said to him, I said, I want to ask you a question. I said, you remember several years ago getting an envelope that just had 60 bucks in it, no note or anything. And she looks at me with these big eyes like, oh my gosh. She said, that was from you. And I started to cry. I said, this is something I've been carrying all these years. Isn't it something how something little like that can destroy you? And I said, Ron, I want you to forgive me because I took that money as from the 
tip jar and I was working for you as a 15-year-old kid and I put it in my pocket and I never repaid it. And I tried to repay it with interest, but I'm here in my office and I'm asking you to forgive me. Man, Rhonda threw her arms around me and just laughed. She's pretty much a multimillionaire, so 60 bucks wasn't probably a big deal, but she thanked me for doing it. And I want to just tell you, the reason I share this story is there's nothing like the knowledge that you've been forgiven that God forgives you, that he'll take away your guilt, and you can live without that guilt. You don't have to travel with it anymore. You can be free of it. Jesus has already paid the price for any mistake you've made or anything you should have done that you haven't done. For the 20 bucks you've taken, for the 20 bucks you didn't return. But you've got to ask God. You've got to initiate the process. And you've got to try to make amends. Blessed is the man whose sin is forgiven who his iniquity is not counted against him. If you've never received the forgiveness of sin and the release of your guilt in your life, we're going to ask you to do it right now. Let's pray. God of grace, we just ask. We come to you right now with whatever is weighing on our hearts, whatever action we've done, whatever action we should have done, and we place it before you at the foot of the cross. At the foot of the cross, Lord, we, we admit our iniquity. We admit our sins. We admit our mistakes. We admit all the stupid things we've done. And we ask God, as we look up to that cross and we see what Jesus has done for us, the nails in his hands, the nails in his feet, the thorns on his brow, and how he gave up everything so that we might know forgiveness and his blood was enough, God. Help us to receive that, Lord. Help us to be free of this guilt. We cast it on you. We give it away. We no longer ask to carry it with us so that we might be free to have a relationship with you, free of all the physical and spiritual and emotional baggage that guilt causes. God, I thank you that you forgave David. I thank you that you forgave Robert. I thank you that you forgive me. I thank you that you forgive everyone who's watching and everyone who's praying this prayer. God, help us to travel light as we journey through life and not go on any more guilt trips. Pray this in the name of Jesus, the one who taught us as we say now together, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is kingdom, power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us at Grace Presbyterian Church. We hope and we trust that this message was a blessing and gave you much encouragement as you face today. At Grace Presbyterian Church, we are a church family that welcomes everyone who welcomes everyone, and we would love to welcome you. So please join us either online or in person. You'll find a community that loves God and loves